3: my mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I love people make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you. Call me 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Right now. It is time to retire the term beat and raise. It just doesn't really capture what's happening. In fact, it's throwing people off because it's too amorphous a concept. Now that we've effectively finished earnings season, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about what the takeaways are. You know what the biggest takeaway is? It's the way we report on stocks, all of us. It's not working anymore. It's failing us. It's too glib, too inconsistent, too unrepresentative of a company's worth. The reportage is causing people to make snap judgments that turn out to be false judgments. And it's got to stop. On a day like today, when the Dow slipped 23 points, it's a beat the 0.17%. Nasdaq lost 0.55%. percent we got to pause. we got to figure out what's going wrong with the terminology. Because we need a new approach going forward if we're going to ha- be able to make money. Except A and B against the current ways of reporting the breaking news surrounding Lowe's and Home Depot. And you know both of those companies. That's why this will be so cogent. When these fantastic businesses reported early morning, both were widely panned on multiple lines, especially their forecasts. Within a few minutes of the quarters, a bunch of ballots generated misleadingly negative stories. And it was quite clear that some of them were the product of artificial intelligence. We're talking simple contrast with, without any regard for the myriad factors that contributed to the line items in question. These stories were not false, so to speak. They correctly compared the posted numbers with the analyst estimates. They failed to include even an iota of nuanced explanation, though, for what was described as a mess by the writers. Although, in fairness, the writers have to come up with something that describes the quarter or the future better. And you can hear that later in the show when we talk to Mark Benioff from Salesforce. Same thing happened this evening. Uh, What can I tell you? It no longer makes sense for us to try to capture the story by using this beaten race concept. Now, what makes this so bad? Simple. The stocks of both Home Depot and Lowe's have simply been rocket ships since they reported. I mean, straight up, the exact opposite of what you would have thought of when you read those stories and those headlines that came out instantly. That's why I am so upset about this. The best you can say, I guess, is that the negative headlines gave you a terrific buying opportunity as the stocks fell quickly off these misleading stories. You can argue that those who sold deserve to lose money because they didn't wait until the conference calls. Where they would have heard multiple positives about how these two well-known home improvement retailers were doing. And they are doing terrifically. Yet the headlines this quarter have almost been universally wrong unless it's something incredibly clear-cut like an NVIDIA, where the numbers are so much better than expected that it was actually obvious. Let's tackle what went on here at Home Depot before getting to Lowe's. First, you learn why the stock went up, not down. In the fourth paragraph of the CEO, Ted Decker's, opening remarks, not in the headlines, but in the conference call. Not in the earnings release, but in the conference call. Home Depot has been dogged by excess inventory in 2023, and excess inventory puts pressure on pricing. Now, Decker says, quote, we feel good about our inventory position heading into 2024, end quote. There, that's it. That's all you need to know. That's the most important controllable part of Home Depot's earnings trajectory. from It's from inventory. If you have too much stuff, then you need to discount it, and that's what actually causes shortfalls. Too little, and you can't meet demand. At the end of the quarter, Home Depot's merchandise inventories were 21 billion, down 3.9 billion, or approximately 16% versus last year. You see, that is sensational. That was the metric. Now that Decker says the inventories are clean, that means no promotions, which translates into positive quarters in the future. In the forecast, they will be better than were expected until now. So what happened with the quarter that's caused the so-called shortfall that the articles held? Well, for that, we have to listen to the executive vice president of merchandising, William Bastek, who quoted, and I'll, and I'll just give you to right from the conference call, unfavorable impacts from weather in January, end quote. That threw things off. That's relatively unimportant because Home Depot is not a traditional retailer. Their Christmas occurs in the spring gardening season. The cleanup of the inventory situation will allow them to bring in full-priced goods to meet the, the spring demand. That's why it's going up. Weather, yeah, real problem. But fall of their own, yes. If it, 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 it hadn't been impossible many days in January to build in this country, those numbers would have been really strong. Try summarizing that in a headline. Try to summarize minus nine in Kansas City when when my team was there and did our football did cover that football game. There wasn't a lot of construction going on at minus nine. Depot also boosted its dividend by 7.7%, something that the traders who dominate all the stock market discourse simply don't care about. Investors do, traders earn it out. They don't even get the dividend. How about Lewis? Here was a quarter that the headlines made out to be extremely disappointing. I mean, like this kind, with a slowdown cited for do-it-yourself renovators, the most important part of the company's customer base. Again, though, the problem was the weather. January, same-store sales declined at an amazing 7.4%, but it was weather. CEO Marvin Ellison told you the professional numbers were flat, which, unless you know the company, wouldn't matter. It's real important, though, and again, contrary to what was expected. William Bolts, this time the executive vice president of merchandising, pointed out that building products were terrific. Quote, this was our best performing area with positive comps and building materials, end quote. That's paint, that's drywall, that's roofing. All doing well. Big margin items. And Lowe's is adding a loyalty program for the spring. It's called My Lowe's Rewards, and it'll be available nationwide in March, just in time for gardening season. That's meaningful stuff, not captured. It's why the stock keeps going higher. Okay, now that we know things were actually good, not bad, the headlines were wrong at Home Depot and Lowe's, what did we learn that made both of the stocks reverse and fly higher beyond this? I think it's the virtually unlimited amount of equity in homes. According to Home Depot's Ted Decker, 50% of homes are over 40 years old, prime renovation age. A ton of money's made from renovation at Lowe's and Home Depot. Fundamental housing shortage of between 2 and 6 million homes will keep those prices high. Sure, it would help if mortgage rates would come down, but Decker says it's more important that customers have, quote, tremendous potential in an untapped balance sheet and equity uh, position, end quote. By the way, he's citing 10 $10 trillion dollars added just during the pandemic in value. Wow. Again, that's the stuff that tells me get long. You won't go wrong. And that's just exactly what investors did. It was a great buy point for both Lowe's and Home Depot generated by the headlines. But you wouldn't know it unless you did your homework and had listened to the conference calls. Man, money, was always a takeaway. Today, it happened again. It said, I think that the next rocket ship might be TJX, the all-price retailer behind TJ Maxx and Marshalls. Oh, you would know it from the headlines, which were dominated by a weak forecast. Not again like, you know, what I told you about what's going to happen with Salesforce later on. That kept the little in the stock. The headline writers don't, they don't know two things, though. First, the best indicator of what happens at TJX's stock is the availability of high-quality merchandise that they buy at insane discounts from cash Trap merchants. And listen to what the low-key CEO, Ernie Herman, had to say about all important rhetoric. Quote, Availability of quality branded merchandise continues to be outstanding, end quote. TGX is in a, quote, terrific position, end quote, to buy that merchandise. Later on, he continued, quote, at the end of the day, there's more goods out there than we can handle, end quote. The closure of 150 Macy's locations that we learned about the other day will be a bonanza for TGX. Still one reason why we own this one for the trust. So there's a lot of excess merchandise and the Macy's deal. They are going to be great. Here's the bottom line. I have no illusions about this issue. It's extremely unlikely the headline process will actually change. The misdirection will continue. But my job is to entertain, educate, and help you make money. And the best way to do that right now is to do the homework, listen to the conference calls, shoot against the headline writers. They're in such a hurry, they just can't get it right. But you, on the other hand, can take the time to understand the actual situation and make the best, well-informed, and hopefully most lucrative investment decisions. Clark and Marilyn Clark. Come on, Clark. Hey, big Maryland. Who's that? Booyah. Booyah. My stock is TKO Group. That is the WWE. With Vince McMahon out. And the new streaming arrangement for Raw, are we going to the top rope, or
0: are we getting pinned?
3: Holy cow, that kid's got horse sense, doesn't he? Um, I'll tell you, this is a tough one, and it's involved with Endeavor, which is really hard to understand. All I can tell you is that I think that the stock has come down so much. And I know, just so you know, I know from people, uh, really, I will go as far as to say who first told me that this one was great why don't we just use like like, like Stroud selling? He said that the that WWE is great. I've seen it. I know how many people are excited about it. I got to tell you, I, it's down too much. I like I like the kid's attitude. Very positive attitude for the kid. All right, look, the headline writers are in such a hurry to jump to conclusions about a company's earnings report that they get it wrong. But if you take the time and you do the homework, you listen to the comp school, you will make money off their mistakes. Isn't that a great opportunity to make money tonight? Salesforce turned in his quarterly report after the bell, and despite following up in the news because of the forecast. I'm getting a sense of how AI is pushing the company to new heights with CEO Mark Benioff. Then a story you might have missed. Garmin reported a strong quarter that went seemingly unnoticed. I'm digging in to see how that's possible. I think this one can keep running. And what should you make of Salesforce? Of Snowflake, given the quarter, all I can say is I'm blown away. We're going to speak to both the outgoing and the incoming CEOs. at Snowflake. Holy cow. I got to process this stuff. Stay with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
3: What do we make of these numbers to cause Salesforce stock to get hit and if they're trading? The cloud software colossus has been a big winner of late. Stocks up 83% over the past 12 months as of tonight. That's in part thanks to new AI-related products that can help clients do a better job of serving their own customers. But tonight, Salesforce reported, headline numbers, strong, modest top and bottom line beat, higher than expected four-year earnings forecast. There still was enough. For the skeptics to nitpick about, sure, Salesforce rolled out a 40 cent quarterly dividend first time. Added 10 billion to buyback, a lot of money. But their operating margin came in a tad light for the quarter. Out your revenue guidance a bit weaker than expected. In response, the stock has sold off in after-hours trading. Well, I think most of that's because it had run up into the quarter. Analysts after analysts kept raising price targets. It's up 14 percent year-to-date. Generally, Salesforce these post-earnings pullbacks are buying opportunities. Why? Because forecasts are always very very conservative. But do not take it from me. Let's check in with Mark Benioff. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Salesforce to get a better read on the situation. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money.
4: Jim, hello from New York City. It's great to see you. Oh, I
3: wish you were down here. It would be terrific because we could talk about how these revenue numbers are beautiful. and You got a lot of new clients and we could talk about Copilot because you just announced it. And I'd like to know already, what's the, what's the fervor for it? <laughs>
4: Well, come on over to Salesforce Tower, Jim. You know where we are, and I'll tell you, I've never been more excited about what's happening right now in our company, especially with artificial intelligence, just like you said, data cloud. It's amazing what is going on with uh, our incredible new product line. We're seeing the fastest growth of any new product that Salesforce has ever had, ever, with our data cloud.
3: Now, uh you talk periodically about billions of queries and then trillions of queries over longer periods of time. What is it like now with the queries because it's actually a better measurement than trying to f- figure out whether you said 8% revenue growth, 9%, which tires me. I'd like to know about the actual customer experience.
4: Well, you can see, Jim, we had a phenomenal quarter with uh, record uh, revenues and profits and cash flow and we're projecting incredible numbers for the year, especially our cash flow number is just phenomenal. But Jim, what I'm really excited about is the transformation that has gone on in the entire company over the last year. You can see that in just the equity performance over the last 12 months is beyond my expectation. I'm sure it's beyond anybody's expectation. And if you look at where we were since we well, first went on the show in 2008, well, I mean, I don't think either you or I could have ever imagined what has happened with Salesforce. I mean, we just finished up a year at almost $35 billion in revenue. And now we see us moving forward as the third largest software company in the world, delivering tremendous amounts of customer success. And Jim, it's really about exactly like you said, customers giving them what they need right now. And that is the ability to manage this huge amounts of data that they need to deliver high quality artificial intelligence.
3: Now let's talk about something that we also would not have mentioned in 2008. Big buyback, huge dividend. Now, those are something I expect usually from mature companies, but I've seen fast-growing companies get them. Are you a hybrid now? Well, some people say, oh, my God, a dividend doesn't know what to do with the cash.
4: Well, Jim, I think you know that we have many stakeholders at our company, not, not just our great Ohana, our employees, our customers, but also our investors. And we're trying to serve everybody. And that means that we have to be able to, you know, make sure that we don't suffer any major dilution, which is why we're buying back. And also we're giving back with our dividend. I think this really speaks to the size and scale and quality of the company that we've built with Salesforce. All
3: right. So tell me about how your co-pilot is different, say, from another co-pilot that I use pretty much every day.
4: Well, there's a big difference, Jim, because our co-pilot uses our customers' data to make decisions. That's incredibly important. As you know, Salesforce is built on a rich fabric of data and metadata, and that data and metadata that serves so many of our customers, whether it's Amazon or whether it's IHG or even OpenTable or even You know, an amazing company like Schneider Electric, all of these companies, their data and metadata is a woven fabric throughout their whole company that really illuminates their customer relationships. Our co-pilot is deeply integrated into that data. You know, we already have tremendous user interfaces at Salesforce. You know that, Jim, our sales cloud, our service cloud, our marketing cloud, even Tableau, even Slack. These are amazing ways to talk to that data. But we have the ability then to go inside the data with the artificial intelligence and then provide unique insights because that data is living with us every single day and that means that we're going to give those customers an incredible experience in fact i was just using open table and you and i have made restaurant reservations before we've even shown up at a couple of the same restaurants. And when we get there, you know, it's always a great experience, but sometimes getting there, it's a little bit difficult because you're trying to work with that system. It does it really know me. Is it really able to understand what I'm trying to accomplish with our copilot, We're really seeing a level of artificial intelligence that's so usable, so easy to understand that our customers are having these amazing breakthroughs in their ability to run their business an incredible new way. Right, well, let,
3: let's, uh, let's pigeonhole you for a second like most of the analysts were doing, certainly all the journalists. You use a number that talks about how you're going to be up 8 to 9% revenue guidance. And people say, oh no, we want 9-10. Uh, how do you appease? How do you uh, chide those people? Because what I worry about is there's a whole sheet of unbelievable numbers. Then there's an 8. And because you have an 8, suddenly you're not Mark Benioff. You're someone else. What do I do about that?
4: Well, Jim, it has been an amazing 25 year run with Salesforce and here we are at this extraordinary revenue level and we are growing at a size and scale that means that we're adding huge software companies onto our company every single year. So, I mean, we're the third largest software company in the world. We're now the second largest in Japan. We're the number one enterprise apps company in the world. We've passed SAP. It's an amazing place to be. And at this size and scale, I'm very grateful for the ability to kind of have the revenue growth that we have, but also the free cash flow guidance that we're giving for this year, which will be up to over 23, maybe 24, 25 percent. That's amazing.
3: That's the and real number. Do people really understand that that's the real number, that free cash flow is how <laughs> I mean, that's it. the company I work at, what we talk about is free cash flow, because that's the number. I got one last, one last question. Schneider Electronics, okay? Why <laughs> fiscal sh- your 25, free cash but flow growth, Jim,
4: is 26%. Look, I understand so IHG. That's a- Pretty awesome, I think, uh, no, and I'm pretty excited about to all of these. Numbers. I think it's great. I mean, we could
3: talk about margin is up a thousand basis points for the year,
4: Jim. It's amazing. Well, I
3: was just going to ask about I see IHG, Of course, a big hotel. You're six in the world. They want Salesforce. Oh, yeah, uh, they're great. Absolutely. A, there's no doubt about it. Open table. But why does why does Schneider need you? I mean, they're not they custom. They're not individual facing. Well, let's talk
4: actually IHG, and then let's go to Schneider. IHG has hundreds of millions of consumers. Yes. Who are working at our service and working with our co-pilot and also working with our AI with Einstein. As you said, Jim, is doing a trillion transactions a week, the most successful artificial intelligence implementation in the history of enterprise software that does not only predictive but generative as well. And by tying together all of this data and metadata, we are really delivering to customers like IHG this ability to unlock all their trap data. You know, I think that a lot of customers use all these amazing systems and we work with all these amazing companies like Snowflake and Databricks and Microsoft and Amazon. But a lot of these data sets, they're trapped. You know, they're not people who are using these every single day, they're done by used by data analysts. But our customers who are in our sales cloud or service cloud or Slack or all these things, we have millions and millions and millions of users. We're able to then unlock that trapped data by bringing it into our data cloud through what we call zero copy. Zero copy means that we're reading all those databases and then bringing it into our metadata framework. And that is what you're gonna need to make artificial intelligence really work for you. You're not gonna have the AI success in your co-pilot if you don't have the data and metadata to deliver the intelligence. That Absolutely.
3: Jensen Wong's explained that to me and you've explained it to me and I agree with you and the quarter was excellent and I'm very grateful as a charitable trust owner. I get the dividend and I get to give it away. So thank you so much, Mark of co-founder, chair and CEO of Salesforce. Good to see you, Jim. Good to see you, sir. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Man Money's back here the break.
2: Coming up, check your GPS for where this stock is headed. Kramer explains
0: why a familiar name just won't stay down. Next.
3: sit in the flood of earnings reports last week, but last Wednesday, we got a remarkable quarter from Garmin, of all things, the personal electronics maker you probably know for their navigation systems. In response, the stock shot up nearly 9% in a single session, and it's just kept running all the way up to 137 as of today, basically its highest level since early 2022. Now, I've been following this one for as long as this show's been on the air, and I've generally been a fan as the stock's given you many years of outperformance. But Garmin's fascinating because it always feels like the deck's stacked against them. Most tech hardware companies, particularly the consumer-focused ones, are supposed to have a limited shelf life. Their stocks can get hot, but only for a while before they come plunging back down. Anyone remember GoPro? Uh, okay, they're still alive, but the company's now worth less than $400 million. Down for almost $12 billion at the peak nearly a decade ago when I saw a goat wearing a GoPro on its head while riding a surfboard in Hawaii. And I said, time to sell the stock. Consumer electronics companies are always racing against their own obsolescence. Even if it's even harder for independent alphas like Garmin, they're often competing against the most powerful companies on Earth. they got a number of smart watches, for example, that are against the Apple Watch, and their navigation systems need to be better than the navigation you can get directly from your phone. For years, it seemed like Garmin should be on its last legs. Yet, kind of like Steven Seagal playing Mason Storm in his seminal work, Garmin's hard to kill. During the pandemic, Garmin became a play on the great outdoors, the only way to take a vacation safely under COVID. And so as people got vaccinated, the stock peaked in the second half of 2021, and then it got eviscerated. By the time it bought in October of 2022, it had fallen more than 57 percent from its highs. That's a big one. It raised the entirety of its covid era as we know that that happens. In the last year and a half, though, the stock's gradually ground its way higher again from the mid-70s to 137. That's especially true over the past few months. So, how the heck does Garmin do it? How do they stay relevant and keep putting up really good numbers? Let's start with last week's terrific quarter. There was a strong top and bottom line beat with 13% revenue growth. Four of Garmin's five core segments came in better than expected. Only their auto division fell short, even as it was up 54% year over year, thanks to the acquisition of JL Audio, which makes speakers and other audio products primarily for cars, but also boats. The real strength was in the fitness and marine units, with the largest business outdoor doing pretty darn great. On top of that, Garmin's gross margins came in at 58.3%, up 130 basis points year over year, massively higher than expected. Their operating margin was even more impressive. It came in 340 basis points uh, higher than anticipated. That's incredible, people. And that translated into a huge 32-cent earnings beat off $1.40 basis, 27% increase versus the previous year. Of course, it wasn't perfect. Garmin's full-year forecast was a little more mixed. The revenue guidance was excellent, but management was more cautious about its operating margin and its earnings per share outlook, which both came in a little light. And the full-year free cash flow guidance was outright disappointing. Now, I'm not too worried about the imperfect forecast, though, because Garmin is a longtime serial practitioner of UPOD under-promised and over-deliver. Clearly, the buyers agree with me. Plus, the company rolled out a modest dividend boost, a $300 million buyback authorization, which is a nice sign of confidence, even as neither of these moves are big enough to move the needle. So, those are the numbers. But how did Garmin generate the numbers? It, it, that's the story. Frankly, it's not that complicated. Like so many gadget makers, Garmin suffered through supply chain constraints in late 2021 and most of 2022. On the conference call last week, management said they entered 2023 still very cautious because of those factors. But, quote, during the year, component lead times and availability continued to normalize, while shipping bottlenecks eased, end quote. Those factors combined with healthy demand for the company's products, reduced inventory levels and boosted the company's free cash flow substantially. Look, I think the real story here is simply about Garmin's durable demand, which comes down to the fact that these guys never stop innovating. Take their uh, Venue 3 smartwatch that was released last August. It gives users a complete picture of their health from sleep trends to activity tracking. The Venue 3 won three separate awards at this year's CES conference, including the Best of Innovation Award for, for Outstanding Engineering. People buy stuff like this because of that. Within the outdoor segment, Garmin called out new underwater diving products, like its recently released Scuba smartwatch. Then there's Garmin's e-Track series of handheld GPS systems, including a new version which comes with a solar charger. Now, look, I love my Apple Watch, but if that, that thing runs out of juice in the wilderness... It doesn't navigate you anywhere. It, it would it'd probably just be like the one that I have here for Garmin, which is not plugged in. There was some great commentary on the marine division where Garmin's technology can do things like help you find fish. Now, that's how I know the company. Without it, let me tell you something. You'd be fishing for fish where there ain't no fish. While the overall marine industry slowed last year, uh, Garmin outperformed the rest of the space, taking market share thanks to great products like their new sonar mapping gear and deep water imaging capabilities, which I want to get this summer. The smallest two segments, aviation and auto, both had big wins with original equipment manufacturers. The aviation business had one of its one integrated flight deck products uh, selected by a vertical takeoff uh, and a landing aircraft company that's back, backed by Embraer. That's a giant Brazilian company. But well, the auto division saw such significant year-over-year growth thanks to increased shipments to BMW. High quality. Keep hearing that, right? Mostly domain controllers that help manage all the electronics in a car. In the end, Garmin's still the nice, clean gadget story that we've known it for for roughly two decades. The story got noisy during the COVID era, but they are now over that. They've gotten over their supply chain issues, and the company's now in the strongest inventory position it's been in ages. But the real story, real story, the reason that Garmin can't be killed It's all about innovation and compelling products that can help you with your fitness training, your outdoor excursions, your round of golf, your fishing trip. Garmin doesn't need to make the best products for everyone. They need to make the best products for each particular niche they're focused on. And that's why they never seem to get steamrolled by the mega caps. They're clever. Now, at this move, the stock's gotten more expensive. Selling for 25.5 times this year's earnings estimate, that's a little, eh, I don't know. But I'm okay with it. Kind of. Garmin deserves a premium valuation, as I think they'll, again, be able to beat earnings estimates. So let me give you the bottom line on what I think is actually a pretty exciting story. Garmin is the kind of company that could have been a flash in the pan because its consumer electronics business is so darn competitive. But the company is so well run and such a consistent innovator that it has managed to keep winning year after year. And now that they got their supply chain issues sorted out, I bet that the stock has more room to run. Okay. Let's go. Let's take calls. I think we should take some calls. Let's go to to Steve in New York. Steve.
2: Uh, Yes. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course.
3: uh, My questions on NVIDIA uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Adobe. My questions on Adobe and the recent sell off. And I was wondering your thoughts on how I've been monitoring it. To it, and I happened to say to Ben Stoto today when we were going back and forth, you know, Ben likes to talk to me and interrupt me. Actually, it's the opposite. I think that Adobe, this is the right level to buy. It's come down a lot. Tomorrow, Salesforce will be down because they didn't blow away the number. That gives you your opportunity because they kind of trade together, and I want you to take it. Now I want to go to Harrison in California. Harrison. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? All right. How about you? Pretty good. Thanks. What's your opinion on the, on the ultimate Bitcoin proxy, microstrategy? Okay, well, microstrategy is a way to play it. I prefer a, a way that I think, like, you know, it, let's say your kids and your grandkids would know, which was just go do the ETF. It's run by real people. Good thing. You really just want, in the end, you want Bitcoin. You'll probably want Ethereum. I bet they'll do one for that. that that's how you want to play it. Now that its post-COVID overhang is over, Garmin's innovation and ability to make compelling products is shining through again. I think this name can keep winning into the future. and hey, much more bad money had including my exclusive with Snowflake. With the cloud stock sinking on the news of a major shakeup in the poor route, I'm getting all the important updates with both the outgoing and the incoming CEOs. Now, all day long, you've been hearing about the end of Apple's EV car pursuit, so where do I come down on the issue? I'll give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire tonight, this is the lightning round, so stay with Kramer. just happened to the stock of Snowflake, the cloud-based data analytics software play. So it's stock plummet roughly 20% after hours trading tonight. You know, I like this one. Snowflake shares have been roaring since the lows last October, so when the current report had the close, it was coming in hot. You wouldn't know it from the action, but the actual results were real good. Clear top and bottom line beat earnings per share nearly double what the analysts were looking for. Plus, Snowflake brought in a ton of new business while practically printing cash. Unfortunately, management's guidance did fall short in both the current quarter and fiscal year, but I think the real issue is we found out the legendary Frank Sloobin is retiring CEO effective immediately, passing the reins to Sridhar Ramaswamy, previously Snowflake's senior vice president of AI. So what do we do now? Let's go straight to the horse's mouth with Frank Sloobin, chairman and outgoing CEO, as well as successor, incoming CEO Sridhar Ramaswamy, to learn more. Gentlemen, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. All right. so Thank you, Jim. Frank, I think I'm probably the only one not surprised. You told me this was going to happen. You told me what you do is you go in, you get a company going like you did with data domain, like ServiceNow, and then you move on because you give it all she's got. So this is the moment, right? You're in a chair, but you feel like you've gotten to where it has to be.
5: Yeah, it's it's certainly that. But it's also having, you know, a great opportunity, you know, to have cross paths with somebody like Sridhar, that uh you know we're we're thrilled to bets that we're, we're able uh, to make this move and uh, affect succession in this way.'ve uh, been part of many successions uh, in the past, and they're difficult and hard and challenging. so i'm uh, I'm super, super pleased to be where we are uh, today.
3: All right, So, sohriard, I, I know you as someone, I know you from a, a close friend of ours admittedly, but you uh, did, you came in at 1.5 billion. And add sales, and he took it to 100, Bill. I think that's not so bad. But big shoes here. Because when Frank retired from ServiceNow, it was a 67, and then it went to 759. What are your plans going forward to keep the momentum?
6: <laughs> um, you know, Frank and uh, our founders have built Snowflake to be the trusted, efficient, cost-effective enterprise data platform. Uh, that's a pretty good base to build on top of. But what's really exciting about the current moment, Jim, is that we have so much ambition to do more, whether it is applications running on top of Snowflake or of course using the power of generative AI, which I've been focused on for the past year to democratize access to enterprise data, to have even more people be able to get at the data quickly to get value from it. So I think there's a huge opportunity in the world of data applications and AI That'll keep me busy for many years to come. Well,
3: let me ask you, what do you think about the idea that what happens is that people say, you know what, before I spend hundreds of millions of dollars buying unbelievably great cards from Jensen Wong, maybe I want to find how it works, find out whether I can do something with the, with the AI and see whether the expense, get a return on investment or not. Have you been able to help customers already figure out whether that's the right thing to do?
6: Well, so that's the magic of how we approach this problem. And we rolled out, you know, what we call Snowflake Cortex, our AI layer. We did all the hard work. So our customers didn't have to go buy GPUs or go to other complicated things. If you can write SQL, you can use Cortex to access language models. Similarly, people are very excited that without having to write a line of code, they can extract structured data from documents. Um, We're also working on an ability to literally talk to your data, where you ask questions in natural, uh, natural language, and underneath, we do the work, we run the SQL queries, and return that data back to you. And so, what you know, this is without any commitment from any of our customers. That's the part that really excites them. They know the generative AI is going to have a big impact, but they get to try it out with these products without needing to make heavy upfront investments. Um, all built into Snowflake, the platform. And that's the thing that they're really excited by. We literally have hundreds of customers that are on our wait list for these products to hit GA.
3: That is very important because people are concerned about the forecast. But Frank, legendarily on Mad Money, you once told me when I said that forecast looks light, you said in Bill Belichick fashion, Jim, the forecast is the forecast which told me, please, think, be a little more open-minded. Now, Frank, in the rise of the data cloud, you did predict that this would happen. You said you basically laid things out without being knowing that we were going to have generative AI at the time. But this is a different company from what you went to. But it's got billions of dollars in revenues, as is typical, versus what you came in. Is there enough half to be able to make people say, you know what, before you go by, we're the right shop?
5: Look, you know, um this this is this is really uh, a, a great time, and uh, you know the conversation. Uh, you know, I, I have said the guidance is the guidance. Uh, you know, these things are just you know blips uh, on, on the radar. Um, you know, you got to just watch. You know what we do and what we report. Uh, giving guidance uh, to for consumption companies obviously is notoriously uh, uh, you know challenging, but I you know we we are in a in a in an absolutely fabulous place. We are you know, the company you know, to come to, to enable and empower all your workloads, all your different personas in the enterprise, and really extract maximum benefit you know, from your data estates. So I uh, couldn't be more excited to be sitting here with Sridhar uh, today. Uh, because the future is is super compelling to
3: okay, us. Okay, Mr. Shredo, this has historically been, there is a, a seasonality to your business. I'm hoping maybe it gets unseasonal, so to speak. This quarter has not been always the best of your quarters. Can that change? I mean, I don't really understand why it's seasonal. Maybe you can explain that.
6: I mean, holidays are always tricky, um, and, uh, you know, there was almost like an extended two-plus week holiday uh, this year, and in spite of that, we came in pretty well with uh, Q4. Um, and then in terms of guidance, you know, it's based on historical consumption data, and as we know, the last two years have been tumultuous. Um, and right. uh, we've right. also waited uh, last year more um, than than sort of previous years, but we have a ton of stuff that's going to be hitting GA, everything in AI, but also, like, transactional stores and applications on Snowflake. So there's a lot of, you know, upside there, um, but the forecast is conservative.
3: Well, look, I want to, I'm glad you said that because it's important for people to know that it isn't necessarily that you guys are pie in the sky. You're just the opposite. Frank, I'm going to give you the last word only because I just, you know, I enjoy your work tremendously. Um, you have said over and again, to me, look, Jim, I like three years, I like four i I'd like to give it all. Would you go back or is this it for you? Are you finally done, Frank? No, I'm finally uh, done,
5: doing. I mean, I don't want to be one of those quarterbacks who doesn't know how to get off the field. You know, I'm uh, making room for a bigger and greater talent.
6: Wow. Well, Frank is still going to be chairman on our board, and yes. I'll be talking to him regularly. He is, uh, he's still a big fan of the company and all of us. Um, and uh, we are all truly, truly grateful for what he has made Snowflake to be.
3: Well, I'll tell you, I think I've, I'm thrilled to be that you came on and introduced uh, you know, this. Is, you know, Shridhar, it's great to meet you. I hope you come once in the future. Uh, Frank Slootman, I hope to see you again. Uh, Sridhar Ramaswamy, congratulations on becoming CEO of Snowflake. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Gentlemen. Thank you. That's Frank Slootman, Chairman's uh, chairman now of Snowflake that's CEO and Sridhar Ramaswamy CEO of Snowflake. Man, money's back in for the money.
2: Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky's the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round.
0: Next.
3: Before we get to the lightning round, I need to let you all know how fired up I still am after the investing club's annual meeting this past Saturday. On top of my state of the market member Q&A and talking about the club's portfolio, We had this special segment going through the history of Mad Money with our very own executive producer, Regina Gillian, on stage with me. First time, sharing some behind-the-scenes secrets and stories from almost two decades of the show. Oh, it was by far my favorite moment. You need to see it. Go behind the scenes with this limited-time offer to the club. Catch the highlights of the whole meeting on demand with Jeff Marks. It's terrific. Scan the code. Go to CNBC.com slash Slash sale to learn more. And now it is time. There's some of the lightning round creamers. If you have something close right, I'll tell you the name of the slides. my set, you can And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skeet? Dad, number the lightning round creamers. let start with Keith of Pennsylvania. Keith! Hello, Kramer. How are you doing? I am doing well, Keith. How about you? Oh, I'm so blessed, man. All right.
2: Hey, well, I got a question for you about a stock that ironically ran up uh, big the past few days. Right. And I want to know, with the company's improvement to their bottom line and easing interest rates in the latter half of this year, if Wayfair is a buy.
3: You know, Keith, if you had asked me before saying those things that you said, I would have said the exact same thing. It's doing exactly what you describe. Our viewers are so smart. Bingo, W. And I didn't used to think that way. I'm going to Tad in North Carolina, please, Tad. Booyah,
2: Jim. We I are. hope you're
3: having a great day. I'm having a good one. How about
2: you? I'm hanging in there. Um, All right. I've written the stock I'm calling about up, down, and now back up again. I love what this company does, and they released a great earnings report this week. At these levels, what is your opinion of transmetics?
3: Organ transplant, very important. They did have good numbers. I'm familiar with them because I share that with my wife, Lisa, the... Uh the annual gala for the baby's heart from for columbia presbyterian organ transplants are incredibly important i think these guys are doing well let's go to bonnie in california bonnie
0: hi jim booyah
3: booyah what's up bonnie
0: thank you for taking
3: my call i'm a founding club member yes and I- I was wondering, what are your thoughts on Bank of America? I think it's a very inexpensive stock. It's a Buffett stock, by the way. It's doing well, 10 times earnings. You're not going to get it to 20 times earnings. It is going to go up over time. It yields almost 3%. I like that. I like that. Brian Moynihan doing an excellent job. Let's go to Dave in Arizona. Dave. Hey,
2: Jim. A big warm weather. Booyah from Phoenix.
3: Uh, Well, I guess kind of a, yeah, weather. Booyah like that here, too. What's going on, man? Hey, um,
2: I've been in this stock for about a year and a half. I um, just want to know what you think about a long term play, longer term play on it. It's Wesco International, WCC. I don't know what happened
3: that last quarter. I think it's good. It's very inexpensive now. I, I, I'm okay with Wesco. Oh, geez. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The
2: Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, Apple's hit the brakes on the electric car. But Kramer's not switching gears on one of the street's most reliable performers. Next.
3: I keep hearing negative chatter about how Apple's giving up on its electric car. It's somehow bad. Oh, it just puts them deeper in the hole, the hole of no origination, the hole of a stock that deserves to be down over 5% for the year. Blah, blah, Elliot, blah. All I can say is people love the trash talk Apple and scare you away from one of the most consistent long-term winners out there. Let me tell you how I look at this. I think Apple was waiting for more widespread acceptance of the electric vehicles before they took the plunge. Even as they did keep a team on case for years, they probably assumed that more and more people would go electric in ever-increasing numbers, and that hasn't, didn't happen. The movement pending cheaper cars, bigger subsidies, and more faster charging stations has indeed stalled out. <laughs> Think about the millions of miles locked by Waymo, Alphabet's autonomous vehicle business, and then remember how few areas even allow driverless cars. It's clearly a sucker's bet. General Motors has spent billions upon billions developing crews, their own driverless business, yet the town they were most proud of, San Francisco, suspended the technology after a single gruesome accident. Never mind that car accidents are one of the leading causes of death in the United States. It just doesn't make national headlines when a human is at the wheel. The guy I spoke with for GM, Kyle Vogt, the head of Cruz, was so confident when we rode around town together. Two months later, Cruz's driverless car permits suspended, Vogt resigned, suboptimal situation. Who the heck would want to get involved in this business? Which brings me back to Apple. To the critics, do you really think that this is the time to go all in on self-driving electric vehicles? Alpha wanted a piece of this this and you know, Waymo's just lost them foragers. GM wanted a piece of it, Cruise has been a costly disaster for them. Do you really want Apple to follow in their footsteps and flush billions of dollars down the sewer of self-driving cars? I'll pass. Look, I understand how Apple gets pigeonholed as a handset maker, and there are plenty of people who believe that a car would make Apple less hostage to the phone market. I was gratified today to see that the level-headed Wamsi Mohan put out a piece about Apple's sky-high customer loyalty and a refresh cycle that was somewhat positive. Wamsi noted that Apple's regaining mind share in China. That matters. And when the Vision Pro price come down, it'll be more popular. That matters, too. But at the end of the day, if you're looking for reason to buy Apple right here right now, nothing does stand out. Including the sports app that I love, it's rudimentary. This is where you need both a leap of faith and a leap of taste that Apple's going to make something that has something that's better than you think it is. Something that justifies the existence of the product and makes it soar. With most companies, I wouldn't necessarily be willing to make that gamble. But Apple's are in the benefit of the doubt to buy the lull. And look, I say this is someone who runs a charitable trust with an open hand. And you can see exactly what we've done with Apple, if you're a member of the CMC Investing Club. Like I always tell you, we just own Apple. We don't trade it. Something that's made us fortunate for charity over the years. I don't know when the law will end. I don't know if the stock needs to revisit the low 170s, maybe even the 160s. I don't know. What I do know is that you're probably holding your iPhone while you're watching right now, or maybe you're watching on your iPhone. And I, said, I bet if I said to you right now that you can't find your phone, I think even though it's in your hand, you might have lost it. You might have a mini panic attack. Apple stock is down. Apple, the company, it's working, working, working for you. And I bet it'll keep working until the stock turns around, which has been the story of this one for more than two decades. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now.
0: its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such to view the full mad money disclaimer please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer from a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive